0: What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 podcast player. I'm excited to be out this exclusive interview with George Freeman, who's the chairman and founder of Geopolitical Foods. If you have no idea who George Freeman is, all you need to know is he's probably the world's leading expert in both predicting, analyzing, geopolitical futures and what it means in terms of international affairs. He has a huge history book. He's wrote many, many books. He's a Hungarian born U.S. geopolitical forecaster. If you were to look him up on Wikipedia, but he's so much more than that. And he is, this is just an awesome, interview. this is honestly one of Stu's idols. And I was so lucky to be able to just sit here and produce this interview. This is a one-on-one with both Stu and George. It's a fascinating conversation, guys. And I'm just going to go ahead and turn it over to Stu to kick this one off.
1: Um, Hey, good morning everybody. We are here with Dr. George Friedman. He is the founder and chairman of the Geopolitical Futures, an online publication that analyzes and predicts global trends. Hey, good morning, sir. Good morning to you. We are so thankful for you stopping by and uh, we're really excited to talk to you about your uh, website as well as The Calm Before the Storm. Um, I have to tell you, this is one of the best single books uh, I have read. So I really appreciate you writing it. And as we go through this, uh, we, I really have some uh, good questions for you on, I never thought of the cycle process. What prompted you to think on the two different types of cycles, uh, the institutional cycle going every 80 years and then the socioeconomic cycle going every 50 years and then holy cow batman we are now going to cross them in the next little bit what a great concept can you tell me a little bit about how you came up with that
2: well i was sitting in a bar in carlisle pennsylvania with two army colonels And we were bemoaning, this was in the 70s, the decline of the United States and Nixon resigning and the way the war in Vietnam was handled and the normal stuff you'd have discussion at the War College. Uh, And I started wondering, was there ever a time that this happened before? Hmm. This kind of negativity in American life. And I went back and I noted that, well, we had it in the 1930s. We had it right after the Civil War. We had it when Jackson took over, and I noted that this was almost exactly 50 years apart. And then I took it, folded it up, and put it in a folder, and went away. Uh, The model said, we're going to have a change about 1980, Ronald Reagan represented that change. And it said that 2020 will be a hellish year. And I said, well, 2020 is not something I'm interested in, I've got other duties aside from worrying who's president. Uh, so I put it down, but as we approached 2020, I realized we were coming into a period of massive instability that would destroy most countries. And I remembered what I did, and I took out the notes, and I decided, okay, well, I'm going to try to write this book. And that's where it came from. It came from trying to understand the transition that happened in the 1970s.
1: Wow. Um the, the impact also, though, with your different, of your, uh, different cycles, uh, we are now in the Reagan cycle. Uh, would you mind telling us between uh, there was the depression, which was so impactful, and then how we ended up in the Reagan cycle, because I believe 2024 is the end of the Reagan cycle, if I read that correctly.
2: Exactly. Well, we had what I call the Roosevelt cycle. I call them after presidents not because that that important, but it's a good marker. Roosevelt raised faced an enormous problem. Too much investment, not enough consumption. They built this massive industrial plant, there was no one to buy. It. So he tried to deal with the question of how to deal with it. And The solution was transferring money to those who would be buying it, who then get jobs from spending the money, except you never managed to do it, which solved the problems of World War II, which was the largest job creation program in the history of the world. Everybody had a job, everybody got a job, and they came out of it with bonds that they could sell. Now, throughout this entire period until 1980, this model of Consumers driving the economy dominated. And the credit card was invented. And the mortgage was universalized. And all these ways of driving the economy. The problem was that the economy became uninvested in and highly inefficient. And we discovered that in the 1970s when we wound up with the impossible combination of massive inflation, high interest rates, and unemployment. Well, the high interest rates came from the fact that there was a complete lack of investment, investment capital. Uh, high, and you had a huge problem that had to be solved, and we had chaos. We had Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy being killed. We had cities burning. The eighty-second Airborne being called out to patrol Detroit. Uh, we wound up in a Long period of the oil embargo, uh, oil prices going right out of the roof. It looked to everybody that America was in decline. Mm-hmm. Well, as we moved through this, we got a new president, Ronald Reagan. He didn't know what he was going to do. Roosevelt didn't know what he was going to do. But he knew something that Jimmy Carter didn't know. Something had to be done. The only thing Carter could imagine is playing Roosevelt. Well, mm-hmm. his day was up. So we wound up having uh, Ronald Reagan who did something extraordinary. He cut taxes on the rich. And he cut taxes on the rich because they had the money. And he wanted them to have more money so they could invest. And what came out of that was this enormous boom in technology mm-hmm. uh, was the reengineering of American companies uh, he, he set off a tremendous uh, explosion. Fifty years later, we wind up in a situation in 2020 that all hell is breaking loose. Uh, There's rioting in the streets. Um, There's uh, all sorts of a sense of the failure of the country. And a massive problem, which is that Reagan was so successful that there's too much investment capital, Mm. not enough things to invest in. So the price of money is near zero. And if you're a retiree, well, (laughs) your entire plan is gone. So we are now in the period where the problem comes to us first by social instability. We will then have a period of apparent pacification, uh, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and we get a terrible president. Each of these eras ended with a real incompetent president, John Quincy Adams. Ulysses S. Grant, Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter. And that's kind of the last election, and then you rotate to somebody who's gonna not be wedded to the previous cycle. And that's what you need.
1: Wow. Um, You had also mentioned in there that uh, uh, when this next, uh, the end of the Reagan era starts, uh, in, uh, 2024, uh, and, and in your cycles, that Trump was only the first indicator of a struggle between the two classes. Um, how do you see the, if he's not the beginning part, uh, in there, how do you see the current, uh, things that have happened just recently impacting the election? Your book was so describing what things are going on right now, it's crazy. Well, one thing to note is
2: that the transitions very frequently have to do with struggles between white and black. We had that in the nineteen sixties. We actually had that pretty intensely back in the nineteen twenties in the south mm-hmm. when the Ku Klux Klan was revived. uh civil war was noteworthy uh this this is a problem that we have—it is kind of the introduction. If you're writing a book, this is the introduction to the book. Then it goes on. Uh, we never quite settle it. We never succumb to it. Right. So you look for these precursors that that are always there. One is a massive financial instability. Now, what you don't look for is coronavirus. I mean, that was nowhere to be found. Although when I went back, you know, there was a natural event that helped cause the depression, which was the dust storms. Mm -hmm. They had enormous impact in ruining Midwestern banks. So Mm -hmm. I will claim that I didn't need to speak of the coronavirus. I implicitly knew it. I can make that lie, but (laughs) who will believe
1: me? Sir, you need to claim it. Um, go ahead, you shouldn't have said that. No, you should have claimed it. So,, um, you know, the one thing that I really enjoyed in the book was the fact that you had talked about the Great Seal and that the the men were inventors. Uh, the men had to invent the country. The country had to invent itself. The immigrants had to invent themselves as they came across. Uh, into the US, um, do you feel that the problems that we have going on right now are due to the folks that uh, this generation has not had to, to uh, invent themselves? Do you feel that that's kind of what's going on right now? Well, when I speak about invention, I speak about firstly, the invention
2: of our regime, the extraordinary mm-hmm. regime that we invented that's like no other. And then I think about the people we invented. The American people are invented. Um, It was a wonderful thing I read from Ben Franklin about the Scots-Irish when they came to settle. And he said, these are terrible drunkards, wastrels. They will destroy American society. They cannot be integrated. And they said the same thing about the Irish. How can you integrate a Catholic into American society? So there's a beautiful model of how America works, which is we're absolutely appalled when the immigrants we must have shows up. And he seems to be utterly incapable of grasping who we are. And we went through this with the Irish Catholic, the Italians, the Jews, everybody, none of them could work out. And now we're dealing with the Hispanics. They can't possibly work out. So... Um, This is a process that goes through, we reinvented, and two things happened. The Hispanics reinvent themselves to be part of American life. Uh, We reinvent ourselves to enjoy tacos. And I made, it seems like funny, but I'm Jewish. I was born in Hungary. I came to the United States. My parents had no idea what the United States was like or was they just wanted to be here. I had to invent my persona. You have to figure out. it. I'm not my parents. I'm them, but I inter- my people. Introduce something wonderful, the pastrami sandwich, that goes beyond anything else. But this is the way.
1: By the way, but this is the way it works.
2: It works. Uh, you have this strange love-hate, constant tension. So one of the things that America insists of is constant tension and overreaction. Well, we're in a hair trigger. We were created in a hair trigger. We were born in battle. In the Revolutionary War, 1% of all males died. 1% Mm -hmm. casualty rate. Okay, we had the Civil War, 650,000 dead, World War II. We spent 17% of our time in the 20th century at war, 80% Mm -hmm. of time in the 19th century. We are a warrior people. Now, here's what's interesting. We are a warrior people, and we don't want to be. Mm. We want to not be bothered so we can get on with what we want to do. But it creates all these tensions. So when you look at America, it is an ongoing compendium of tensions. Mm. And that's what the founders wanted. The founders wanted that tension. They built it into the republic. The way the president is at war with Congress Congress is at war with the judiciary. Everybody's at war with the governors. They created a system of warfare. Now, we know that the situations get in the hand when that warfare gets out of hand. Oh. So the natural process of mutual loathing becomes unbearable. And that's what we had. Roosevelt was held in utter contempt. Walter Lippmann, who was a very distinguished journalist, said, this man is the most unqualified man ever to be president. He's disengaged. He has no sense of anything. This is FDR. Okay. Yep. Um, Ronald Reagan was a complete imbecile. We all knew that. It was published everywhere. Okay. So the new president is always hated mm-hmm. because he violates all the moral principles of previous age. So, so we are a people at war with itself, and we make the war work.
0: And,
1: and I really like the way you phrased that early on in your book, that the founders did um, uh, start the government intentionally to be incompetent or frustrating. I can't remember the word you used, but it was, uh, it was designed to be inadequate or frustrating. They knew they needed a
2: government, but they distrusted all governments. Mm-hmm. So they wanted a government that could do the minimal amount and spend the rest of the time fighting each other. <laughs> so not, we don't have one parliament. We have two parliaments. We have a judiciary that's answerable to no one. And a president who has almost no power. The interesting thing about the United States is the American president is this enormous symbol. yet is powerless. His ability to get anything done, watch Trump try. Yep. Blocked in every single way.
1: But you mentioned in the book also, though, that that changed when the nuclear football came along. How did that impact?
2: Well, we entered a period in which you could no longer declare war. Hmm. The decision of war was forced upon you and instantaneous. And so, with nuclear war, the president was given unprecedented powers. And it wasn't over healthcare or anything like that. He had the ability to plunge the world into war. Now, our presidents were pretty responsible. Proof they didn't do that. But if the Soviets had come at us, he had three minutes to order the Air Force to go. And maybe we'd get going and maybe we wouldn't and who knows. Well we practice that and that changed the presidency. The Korean War was the first war we fought without a declaration of war. The Vietnam War was another one which meant that we now engage in wars without popular consent and that created a very new dimension of, in World War II may have liked it, may not have liked it. It was our war. Congress right. said so. Vietnam, no one said so, except Johnson. And he was only president. He didn't get to say that. And yeah. this changed the country and changed the institutions and creates
1: attention. And uh, I also love the way you said that d- during the Cold War, we were always at tension. And then as we went into the uh Afghanistan section, <clears throat> we've been at war uh under stress for the last, I believe, 18 years. Well so, put it this way, Pearl
2: Pearl Harbor did it. Pearl Harbor was a massive miscalculation, which worked out fine. And the officer on duty noticed the incoming aircraft and said, Well, don't worry about it. He what did he know about radar? But Pearl Harbor taught us that two things. Pearl Harbor and the Depression, taught us that catastrophe could come from any direction at any time. And we lived the Cold War. It could come in any time at any moment. When 9-11 hit, we went back to Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. We were hit. They're going to hit us again. We had no real strategic plan. We had no response in mind. And what we simply did was what we knew how to do, attack. So it was like, OK, we took Guadalcanal, we took uh, Kabul. OK, now what? So we stay there the problem, for 18 years. The problem here is, we are a great power. We are the global power. We are an empire. We don't want to be an empire. Our constitution is against the empire doesn't matter, we are. And we don't know how to manage an empire. We're really, really bad at this and we're learning. Yep. But so much happened at Pearl Harbor to change the American soul of the,
1: it, the way they view the world. You know, my, my dad, I, I remember uh, he was in a, uh, he was always on the alert and uh, we would go down on the family on Sundays, and we only got to see him on Sundays when we went to the uh, parking lot. So I uh, went to the playground there, and my dad was on uh, ready call for a moment's notice to be in a bomber, uh, the B-58, and off to Russia at a moment's notice. So we lived in that strife during that time. I mean, you never knew if your dad was off and running to uh, Russia. Uh, During this time right now with COVID, which your book predicted um, uh, as a disaster coming up into this cycle, um, the real estate, there's so many changes. People are working from home. Uh, You've got some great information in the book about education and, and the changes that are coming around. More and more folks are looking to do like interviews online. Like doing their classes online and the real estate for these big schools, it may become wasteful. Uh, What are your thoughts on the next generation of colleges? Are they going to be as impactful as the left wing? I I hate to use that word, but the left leaning uh, professors had. Are they going to be able to have any of that kind of uh, impact? let, Let me lay it out this way.
2: In the 1920s, universities were for the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mm-hmm. and a couple of Jews snuck in. But that was, the, that was what was a social gathering. G.I. Bill transformed this. The G.I. Bill threw the colleges open to anyone who could read. And we created this massive middle class out of it. The entire professional class that dominated the 50s, 60s, 70s, came out of the GI Bill. GI Bill was over, Uh, the universities went on to do what they want, they do, feel better about themselves. Uh, I was a professor for 20 years, so yes, I, I understand the idea that my primary purpose of being here is to be admired, and my students will admire me and pay money to be with me. Okay, many good things come out of it the humanities and social sciences are particularly troubling because there's as in the 1920s a dogma and that dogma is taught now there's a bigger problem which is right now colleges can charge any amount of money they want Mm -hmm. because the federal government will lend the student money to give to the university, and later the student has to pay for it. He can't possibly pay $300,000 know, coming out of college. He's going to default. But the colleges still operate as if it was Paris in the 15th century, with Peter Abelard you know, creating the university. I was a professor. It was the highest paid part-time work I ever saw. I taught six hours a week. I was working half a year and quality control is, you know, whatever your, whatever your pride dictated. All right. So the, the university is an untenable entity financially. It cannot pay for the kind of teaching that goes on. Secondly, it's a critical institution because it gives you entree to power in two ways. One way, you learn stuff, yeah, and you do, you do learn stuff. The second way is you meet people. If you go to Southwest Arkansas State College, you're not gonna get an internship at Goldman Sachs. If you went to Harvard, you probably do. And these colleges are now as enclosed as um, they were in the 1920s. The thing about it is that Harvard had a questionnaire Uh, that they submitted to the committee that read them and said, is this the kind of person you'd like to have a lunch? Is this the kind of person you'd like to room with? Is he one of our people? Well, hell, I could never get into Harvard then. You know, I got into Cornell, but not Harvard. Nobody wanted to have lunch with me and terrible matters. I mean, they're looking at, is this our kind of people? Which means that a woman from Arkansas who wants, has her ambition to be an anti-abortion activist and start a unit at Harvard, has about as much chance of getting in. Well, that's how it becomes this leftist, if you will, uh, enclosure, with the pressure to conform the same as it was in the 1920s. So, and they ask the question, is this our kind of guy?
1: That's... That is uh, funny. Um, and, and, you know, the real estate you also put in, the, in your book, uh, it would be interesting if they sold uh, all of the university lands to pay for the student debt. I kind of like that line. Well, in Europe, you have a building. It's a university.
2: There's no gym. There's no football team. You go and you study. Okay. It does pretty well. Yep. Imagine Columbia University Owning a huge chunk of the west side of Manhattan, how much that land would cost. Well, these these are going to be selling the land because what's going to happen is that the federal government is not going to continue to finance absurdly educations. People are going to default on their debt. The universities are going to want to keep things as they were, because they the most reactionary institutions imaginable. That nothing may change. And the pressure right now, we got a problem, which is that a lot of the small universities are not going to open in September. Mm-hmm. They run on cash flow and there is no cash flowing and it's not going to work. A lot of changes have to take place. One of them is the idea that 18 is a good time to start college is weird. Well, when life expectancy was 35, 40 years, that's pretty far in. You've Go do it. I taught political philosophy. An 18-year-old is not ready to read Plato. (laughs) Now, there are 40-year-olds who really want to read Plato. 18-year-old needs to get a job. Later in life. And that's what this Zoom is going to do for us. It's going to spread out uh, education.
1: Yep. No, I I agree. And and the young ones uh, are... Uh, Some of the all of the people that we're talking to in the oil and gas and CEOs, their kids are running along behind you and during the interviews. And uh, it's a different way of life right now. Um, And people are getting used to working at home and uh, all of those kind of things. Um, During uh, your predictions in the book and uh, when it came out. You were saying in the 2020s, in the middle 2020s, did COVID really speed things up for all of the things that you were talking about? I mean, this almost is like on steroids, your prediction. Well, that's the way I would put it,
2: but I would say more, it's intensified it. I don't know that it's speeded up. So laying on top of the problems we would have had anyway. Uh, the racial tensions in the country that we would expect it to have happening, uh, economic problems, the collapse of the the value of money. Money has no value. Um, These things are all going to happen. COVID Mm -hmm. simply makes it even more painful and places the government in a position where it has a greater chance of failing. So one of the ways that this whole thing works is the government really screws up. Herbert Hoover, nice guy. Really, really screwed up. Uh, Jimmy Carter, well, yeah, he, submarines are always suspect with me, but, you know, <laughs> you know, he really screwed up. So we have a situation right now when, you know, the last period of the industry, of history, is we have some big screw-ups. And the faster those happen, the more urgently we deal with them. Because if they're kind of minor things, yeah, we'll let it go. What the virus does is force us to deal with the question of just how good our government is Mm -hmm. and whoever gets caught in it gets caught.
1: Um, You were asked, or I believe it was uh, June 14th, you put out an excellent letter uh, on whether or not we are going into a depression. I'd have to double check the date. So don't hold me on that. But it was, not very far ago. And, uh, it was on whether or not we were going to have a depression versus a recession. And your one of your bottom lines in the uh, article was, uh, whatever it is, it's too early to tell, but the numbers are bad. <laughs> so, um, do you, uh, I personally think we're coming into a worldwide depression and I, I have, it's just the numbers that I'm seeing are bad. And when you take a look at the trillions and trillions of dollars that we are now in debt, you nailed it. Uh, the price of the dollar is very different. And I think that uh, we as Americans are re- that your two cycles coming in in this next time is just right on the money for what's coming on. I don't know how you, your crystal ball worked or whatever, but it's pretty good. Drinking Speaking heavily. Of- Ready
2: to get you there. Do what now? Drinking heavily really helps you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to drink heavily after reading your book. <laughs> um, in in the next line of this, because uh, we talked about geopoliticals, uh, future uh, dot com and uh, taking a look at that, you uh, created this draffer report. I believe it was ninety six or something like that. Uh, I have to go look, so some somewhere around in there, and your reporting is phenomenal. Your geopolitical uh, reporting is phenomenal. Uh, I use it uh, all the time in and in, in sources and stuff. What are you seeing in major patterns right now because um, you see so much of the world right now? Can you give me just a few brief overviews of what your thoughts are in the political world right now? I know that's an open-ended, wild, wide question, but I want to hear what your general thoughts are.
2: Well, before the virus, we said the world's going into a serious recession, made harsher by 2008. In our view, 2008 has not yet been worked through all the things that were done and would rise again. And when we look at the world, most countries are in crisis. The European Union is in utter chaos. It's, I won't even go through it. The Russians are struggling desperately with uh, the fact that they are third world power. They export a single commodity, oil, and they don't control the price. That's third world. Uh, and they've never built a modern economy, even The Chinese are going through a terrible crisis. They are a massive exporter. They built an industrial system larger than its domestic consumption can handle. They've got to export. Their biggest customer is the United States. Mm -hmm. The primary job of the president of China is to manage the president of the United States. (laughs) You can't manage Donald Trump. (laughs) And so he wound up with tariffs. And yep. the last thing the Chinese can live with are tariffs. Yep. That plus the fact that he's got Hong Kong in chaos, concentration camps in Xinjiang, fighting with the Indians. And 10 years ago, he promised to push the Americans out of the South China Sea. And we're not leaving. We're, we just sailed three aircraft carriers, which, which is conceptually strange. Three aircraft carriers in tandem down there. So the Chinese are in huge trouble. The countries that aren't in huge trouble is Australia is doing fine. Um, Many of the smaller corrupt countries on the periphery of of, uh, Asia, but all of the major countries are in crisis.
1: Um, India. uh, I absolutely love the Indian culture. And the Indian leaders are, uh, We all, I uh, also have the belief that energy, uh, abundant, low-cost energy will help elevate people out of poverty. And I absolutely respect the Indian uh, leaders right now trying to use whatever the cheapest form, uh, be it coal, be it natural gas, uh, whatever it is. Um, how do you see India? Because they seem to be such a critical part of this whole equation coming forward? Well,
2: India has been a marginal player because it wanted to be. You have to remember, India is not one country. Right. It's a group of countries that the British push together. So it's got one state, but many countries, and it's been managing it. Its great moment is China's problems. The fact that we have realized we're too dependent on the Chinese for even pharmaceuticals, was really a blow and an amazing amount of business because a lot of this moves fast. An amazing amount of business is moving to India and India is rapidly making the structure so that it welcomes them. The Indians interestingly are entering something called the Quad Alliance. The Quad Alliance is Japan, Australia, the United States and the Indians. Now the Indians do not maneuver their ships with all four, only one at a time. That's their solution to say that they're not in there. So they'll maneuver with the Americans or with the Japanese or with the Australians, or sometimes with two, but never all three. They will eventually be drawn into this. Now, from the Chinese point of view, they're blocked in every direction, the Himalayas, the grasslands, Siberia. I mean, they're a landlocked country. They need the sea. And now they not only have the worst nightmare in the world, the US Navy, but everybody else's Navy lined up along their coast. So the question for me is how long does Xi survive? Yep. I mean, Uh, they gotta be mad at him in the central committee.
1: Oh yes, and the skirmishes that are now going on the border, I think are probably just starting, wouldn't you say? Uh, It's hard
2: hard to fight a battle at 14,000 feet. You know the logistical problem <laughs> alone is going to sha and helicopters so behave strangely, but yeah, but it's a kind of strange war, so twenty Indians were killed, so you think, okay, there was it turns out they fell into a gorge. <laughs> now, how did twenty people fall into a gorge? I don't even want to speculate, so let's understand that you can't India and China can't fight a war, not a real one right. uh China is completely blocked everywhere, is not a sea power. India is a sea power, is historic sea power, and is open for business. So I think you're absolutely right. China is the place. And if cheap energy is the driver, everybody should be driving.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh... Again, uh, Dr. Friedman, thank you very much for your time. I I cannot even begin to tell you how much fun I had. And um, I'll tell you right now, uh, if uh, everybody, we need to make and pass legislation that every single child in America, and that includes anybody throwing a rock or tearing down a, a statue, needs to read this book. I'm sorry I believe in it that much. I also love your other book. Uh, so being an author and in such a world uh, knowledge, everybody needs to go to geopolitical.com and sign up for your uh, um, services there. Unbelievable. I don't, your staff you. is amazing. So again, thank you very much for uh, stopping by.
0: I I don't know if we can say any more other than that's just some incredible stuff, George. We really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with Oil & Gas 360, and we, 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 we hope to have you back sometime soon. Guys, please, if you want to hear more of interviews just like this, Please subscribe, Energy360 Podcast by Intercom, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com, where you can check out all of this content. We have so many great interviews. You should also subscribe to the 360 Digital Closing Bell. We go live on YouTube every single day at 2 p.m. You can find the link on the Oil & Gas 360 Twitter bio. You can also check out the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com. Guys, until next time, thank you.